I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. The Diving Deep EDU podcast aims to have thought-provoking conversations that help listeners dive deeper into educational practices with a focus on teacher retention, recruitment, and burnout. Subscribe to the Diving Deep EDU podcast newsletter to get more information about this podcast and these topics. A link is in the show notes. Our guest today is Grace Falcon. Grace is a doctoral student at the University of Washington Evans School for Public Policy and Governance, where she studies urban policy and the impact of segregation on social equity. She has a bachelor's in economics and English from Davidson College and worked at Brown University as a pre-doctoral researcher with Matthew Kraft prior to attending UW. Grace, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I want to start the conversation off by you telling us a little bit more about the work you're currently doing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be having this conversation. So recently I've been working on Uh, several different projects with the Center for Educational Data and Research at the University of Washington with Dan Goldhaber. We've been studying teacher labor markets in Washington state using job Mm. postings as a measure of like desire for new teachers. So we're trying to get it like, is there a more timely way to observe demand for teaching positions? And is that um, information like quick and readily available and cheap to get. Um, Hmm. So that's one main project I've been working on. And obviously, uh, I'm a doctoral student, so coursework and things like that. (laughs) So is it quick? Is it easy to get this data? Um, Yeah. So the data for that project is web scraped from district websites. And I'm not uh, involved in the scraping, but essentially it's just like a Python scraping piece of code that pulls down bi-weekly all of the postings in I think every district in the state if not we're missing like a couple that are really small Mm -hmm. um with yeah and so it's like if you do it Monday and Friday you're really capturing like everything that gets posted almost in exactly real time and so what are you seeing like you know and you're at the beginning of this I, I presume but What are you seeing in Washington state? Are you seeing that there's a teacher shortage? Are you seeing there's a teacher tightening? I like, see, I'm trying to use these different words because I feel like people are like just throwing out teacher shortage Mm -hmm. and different levels of, you know, a reduction in teachers uh, entering the workforce. But what are you seeing like preliminarily in Washington state? Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking about teacher, like, hiring challenges a lot. This won't be a surprise, but uh, we're seeing huge differences across subject areas and Mm -hmm. meaningful differences in volume across timing. So if you break out posts for different subject areas and break them out across time, we can see like there are huge gaps between like 
low minority and high minority schools in special education, for example, mm. or um, English language learner certified teachers. Um, yeah. And so we're trying to sort of tease apart where those inequities arise and mm. like how that would impact um, hiring, like actualized hires in the fall of the school year um, and which positions just like don't get filled, which is yeah. all kind of like hard to f- suss out, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's super interesting, especially yeah. like obviously the subject level differences are yeah. immense. <laughs> yeah. I'd be really interested, you know, as, as you progress in that research and as you get to your findings, I'd be really interested to have you back on and talk about that research and what you learned in your local context within that state. And then like thinking through, you know, how does this apply across the country or is this, or is this localized? What can we learn from it? And, uh, you know, how can we use that? sort of impact change and deal with the changes that are happening within the labor market. So thanks for doing that research. I'll be interested to follow up and follow up with me and let, and let me know. And we'll have you back on to, to have that conversation. But we got connected through an article you co-authored titled Preferences, Inequities, and Incentives in the Substitute Teacher Labor Market. And this is really interesting to me because I'm in a K-12 school and we're always running, looking for subs. And so your article came across, uh, someone might have sent it to me or, or I just came across it. And, and I found it really interesting. And you did a wonderful job of getting into that research and bringing out uh, findings. So thanks for doing that. Uh, and I want to sort of spend our conversation focused on that. So for our listeners, we're going to be getting into the substitute teacher labor market. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this article? What motivated you to write this article around this topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you so much for reading the paper. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, yeah, this is, so it's interesting because there's not very much research on substitute teachers. Mm-hmm. Full stop, punchline. <laughs> um, yeah. And Substitute teachers are like fully integral to the functioning mm-hmm. of schools. And I think you could argue that for actually a lot of non-teacher positions. Um, but because there is so much focus on teacher labor markets and justifiably yeah. like yeah. figuring out how to staff schools with great teachers is extremely mm-hmm. important. But also <laughs> figuring out how to make schools function and to serve those teachers well mm-hmm. and to serve those students as like a good environment well is a similarly important yeah. challenge. Um, and so my co-authors, Megan uh, Lane Conklin and Matt Kraft, um, sort of started getting involved with Chicago at the origin of this project because okay. they noticed these huge inequities in mm-hmm. which schools were getting substitutes on any given day. And just overall, there were just huge differences across the district, um, non-random differences. and. So they wanted to do some sort of policy intervention and Megan and Matt were involved in sort of co-creating with them a financial incentive intervention described in the paper in which we study, um, looking at trying to sort of narrow those gaps or see what tools could narrow those gaps. Now, there's a lot of takeaways from this article. It's over 30 pages and then it has a bunch of graphs and so forth at the end. So I think it might might get into the 90s with, with, with your references <laughs> and so forth. But as we talk now, 
right? I'm not going to ask you what's your biggest takeaway overall, right? I'm not putting you on the record, but I, I want to know like right now, as you think about the article in this moment, it might be different, you know, three weeks from now, it might've been different after you wrote it. It might've been different when you researched it, but what's a big takeaway that's resonating with you right now as we're talking and you're reflecting on the paper? I mean, this was pretty apparent while I was doing the research, but as I mentioned before, like the enormity of inequity in this specific um, dimension of like school labor markets mm. shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't remember growing up like ever having a situation where a substitute wasn't there. Like, I don't know, just thinking about how disruptive this is to like mm -hmm. students and teachers everyday lives and how that's not um, uniform in any way when, uh, this intervention, I think, in my reading, really represents a powerful tool for sort of smoothing that inequity because the labor market for substitute teachers is totally unique compared to the labor market for teachers. And like the ways in which you can work to help that labor market function mm -hmm. more equitably um, should be different <laughs> and should yep. be uh specific to that yeah. structure. Yeah, I like how you're separating them. Even though they're within the school system, they're different entities. So you're dealing with them in different ways. And I appreciate the way that you did that in the paper. And even now, the way that you're articulating that. Was there an unexpected finding as you got into this research? Was there something that came to the surface that you weren't expecting? I mean, I think a lot of the paper findings about sort of how we see more subs coming to schools when they're paid more and like who those types of subs are weren't totally surprising to me. It's kind of like the narrative almost tells itself. Yeah. Um, but I think that I was more interested in like as someone who's not from Chicago, learning more about the district and how it's set up spatially and how those inequities map onto the city and the geography of the city and how mm -hmm. that plays a role in both like the substitute air quote deserts of yep. areas where there are much fewer substitutes living in that neighborhood yeah. and how that maps onto like schools that have a hard time getting subs. Mm -hmm. Um and just like the demographic component with the history of segregation in Chicago yeah. and history into today, you know, continued yeah. like stratification. I think that really reads clearly in the data. Yeah, you did a good job of bringing that up, showing the different pockets, the different neighborhoods and how they were unique. And even uh, the traveling distance for a sub, mm -hmm. like how long a sub would travel to go to a school. I thought that was interesting. And it's it's obvious in a sense, but in another sense, it's it's more important, it seems like almost, for a substitute, their location to the school than a regular teacher. And I, I thought that was, to me, that was an unexpected finding that as I was reading, I was like, oh, I didn't think about. It. There were a lot of things I didn't think about, but I was like, oh, I really didn't think about that. And the importance of having people in a local community and it sort of got me thinking, and I don't know if we'll get into this in this conversation, but it sort of got me into thinking about getting your subs from the community and how do you do that with stakeholders in the community and building that base up and then having your community, you're supporting them with a 
you know, raise the wage of a sub and give them, give them. And then the, the stakeholders in the community are then feeding into the community. And you have this a little bit more of a vibrant connection, a give and take between the two parties. So as I was reading, that, I was like, you know, thinking about how that would be really interesting to mm-hmm. see that play out. Now, there's a lot of school districts who are struggling with subs. Um, and if you're listening, you know, and you are struggling with subs, there's actually a lot that you could learn from this article and this research. A lot of it is very practical and a lot of it could be, I mean, we don't know, right? But it could be transferable to a district. So you describe the research a little bit, but can you get into like some of the specifics of your research that you feel like would be transferable or could be transferable to a district? And what I'm asking for is you have a specific pay rate that you increased and you had a, a certain specific incentives that I think were really interesting. So could you lay out your research a little bit more and how you determined what would motivate subs to go to certain high needs uh, school districts? I think the design specifically, because it was a sort of a pilot to explore how these tools could work in Chicago. So there are a couple of different things that we tried out over the course of the study. And the first was For schools, we targeted support to the schools that were most in need of subs. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that is if you're trying to increase equity in the district, having a blanket small pay increase for all subs would not support the schools that are most in need of substitute coverage or have the lowest, you know, I think our metric was like a weighted average of how many subs you were getting uh, over the last four years. So the schools mm-hmm. that really had these systemically different rates of substitute coverage were the ones that were selected for the pay raise um, treatment. And essentially the way it functioned was that every sub in the dis- who worked in the district on any day, if they worked in one of these specifically designated schools, and that was very communicated to them, they knew which schools they were and it was within their system for picking out uh, teaching jobs to fill. Um, then they would be they would uh, receive this pay raise, and it was a meaningful amount. Like I think it was about twenty percent of their pay. So that is one thing that I think districts who want to take up a similar type of design would need to think about. Like how much pay do they think would be meaningful mm-hmm. to people in their area? Like. How much are subs paid now? What's the cost of living? Like what what would actually get their attention? Mm -hmm. Um, Because 20% of your daily pay is a meaningful difference. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in the second year of the study, we expanded that to even more schools and increased the amount of pay. Um, Obviously, one challenge for applying this in other settings is like the funding component and how you're going to think about getting money for this. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a school finance expert, but <laughs> I imagine something even like a temporary support using ESSER funds to sort of like yeah. add that extra smoothness to school functioning for certain schools that really need it would be immensely powerful. You do in the article point out it is expensive, right? There's It adds up. 
Mm-hmm. But then you did a good job of showing the percentage of the overall budget. And I can't find it right now, the paper in front of me. I think it's towards the end of the article. Mm-hmm. I think it was something like 0.3%, maybe something like that. Yeah, the pay raises were minute compared to how much they spend on instruction. Exactly. So, yes, there has to be funding. Yes, there has to be a funding source. But when you compare it to what you're spending as a whole for this needed asset, of the school to function properly, this is not going to tip the balance. And Mm -hmm. and that's sort of, you didn't phrase it like that, but that's sort of what I took away from it. Now, why is it important or why was it important for this research study to target the schools that got the fewest amount of subs? You sort of just talked about that, but why is this important to have a targeted system in a large school district rather than just giving every sub a pay raise? Why, why did you think that was important for this research? I think I have two thoughts on that. The first is, obviously, it would be great if you could give every sub a pay raise. Like, I think yeah. work should pay. And that's like, yep. just something to mention. And second, <laughs> um, is that one of the root causes or one of the main motivators from the get-go for this project was we're getting all this feedback from school principals that they just can't get subs. Mm-hmm. So what does the data on substitute coverage that we have tell us about, yeah. is this a real like phenomenon? And then is this, where is this happening? Like what types of schools is this happening in? Can we identify them? What sort of schools are the ones that need extra support? And then what could mm-hmm. that support look like? That was sort of the motivation for the original, um, data analysis that became this project, right, is like trying to identify the problem (laughs) and where the problem is located. Um, And so targeting incentives um, is sort of like, it's a more precise way to treat the problem Mm -hmm. than just providing blanket um, pay increases for subs because it's sort of meant to smooth Um, or sorry, diminish the gaps across the district. Like within Chicago, there are schools that have 100% coverage or 99% coverage of their substitute requests. And there are schools that have 50%. And And some that have less, right? Yeah. And I think at the bottom, it's like 14% is the lowest one we saw. Yeah. That's insane. (laughs) Um, It is insane. Yeah. And that should not, like, I think the at least in my mind, the reason for targeting is so that those schools that are most affected by this problem are the ones that are getting mm-hmm. the support to make it easier. And that support is going to go much yeah. further when the problem is exactly. more extreme. Yeah, I love that part about the research. I love that you guys took, that might have been my favorite part, that instead of doing like the whole district with this money, it's like, no, we're going to see if this actually works. And the way we're going to see is we're going to see the schools that struggle the most, and we're going to tackle that inequity with this lever of increasing the pay, and we're going to see what happens. And I believe it was a 22 to 28% increase um, you know, through using that lever of, increase, of increasing the, the pay for substitutes. Now, let's think into the future. You're, and this is just hypothetical. <laughs> You're going to do this research again, but... I'm going to ask you to use another lever, not just money, but another lever to try to tackle this inequity. What would another lever be that you would like to explore? Yeah, two things 
come to mind? I think we thought about this a lot sort of towards the conclusion of the project. Um, so in Chicago, at the same time, uh, I don't know all the details about this, but there were efforts to sort of try to increase the number of people subbing, like try to recruit more subs yeah. in specific communities. So there were like okay. neighborhood specific events to try to recruit more substitute yeah, teachers. And I think that speaks to what you mentioned earlier about mm -hmm. making this more of a community effort. Yeah. Um, I've heard of, this is totally anecdotal, but a principal <laughs> in um, Pennsylvania in a like small town district emailing all the parents and asking if anyone would like to work as a substitute okay. because there are just people who are available and invested in the community. And if they're not, that might be a great way to engage in it. Um, I don't know. Working with kids is wonderful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I think, yeah, that community part was not the core focus of this project, obviously. Yeah. And so I think I'd be really interested in revisiting that and how that would impact mm. like the stability of substitute relationships. I mm. think that would be interesting because even like having substitutes who are familiar to students would probably yeah. be really helpful <laughs> or meaningful. Like you just construct a relationship more of like mutual respect and they are more aware of like students needs and all of those types of things that they just, you know, may not always have the time and space to be equipped to do. And the second thing which they do in Chicago on a relatively small scale is substitutes who are hired specifically to a school and show up every yeah. day. And they're basically like a floating teacher, um, where by floating, I mean, they fill in wherever they're needed. And I think that type of intervention, like providing a support where schools that really need subs, you know, get two floating subs who just are basically full-time employees and show up every day to fill classrooms. Like I would be interested to see how that would work. Yeah. And you mentioned that in the article as well. As I read your article, I struggled with a certain concept within it. And it's something I've been wrestling with as I've researched teacher retention, burnout recruitment, all of that. And the concept is this. So on one hand, your article makes the clear claim that if daily subs pay was increased by around 50%, then it led to a substantial increase, 23 to 28% in sub-fill rates. And it had a positive impact on student learning and school culture and so forth. But on the other hand, as I talk with teachers, not so much subs, but as I talk with teachers, they keep telling me that it's about so much more than pay. So pay is important, but that's not the main lever, right? For some people it is, but the majority are telling me it's other things. So as I read your article, I'm sort of balancing these two sort of uh, pieces at, at tension almost. How do you navigate through these two ideas as you research the teacher labor market? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of my co-authors was working at the time as well, while this project was going on, um, on creating a system for substitutes to provide like low lift for them survey feedback to schools. So like mm -hmm. after each time they worked at a school, they were given some sort of automated survey to their email that they could mm -hmm. fill out. And every quarter, um, Megan compiled that information and anonymized it and presented it, like made a standardized format that went mm -hmm. to the principal of that school. So they could understand like how that sub experience is functioning in their school and ways in which, that experience can be crafted to be more appealing to subs and thus like sort of get at this, you know, desirability of 
that school work environment. Like if teachers in this school don't have lesson plans for substitutes, and that's a known fact among the pool of substitutes, yeah. that feedback would probably come through in a substitute like uh, survey mechanism. You know, if they're mm. being asked about these specific questions about supports they had and what they needed and what was, you know, where their needs met. I think that's one tool to sort of connect this problem to other aspects or like mm. identify other um, aspects of the substitute shortages within schools. In some senses, it seems like you raise the pay, you'll get the people. But then in the other sense, it's you build a strong school community that supports the people that are within that community and people will stay. How do you navigate like the importance of those two and how they interact together as you think about subs or other teacher labor market issues? Yeah, I think the community building and environment building is a really foundational project that is, mm -hmm. and by that I mean like a long-term project by necessity, you cannot change those things overnight. And so mm. I sort of think of these two strategies as complementary where you need to provide administrators and principals and teachers um, with the tools to make it a good substitute environment and to make it, um, and that doesn't even mean them taking on more work. It just means knowing what subs need and making sure yeah. those needs are met. Um, I think that's integral to also making the financial component work. Like mm. you can't, yes, the money will <laughs> bring people in, but yeah. getting people to keep coming back is um, <laughs> about their experience. Like mm. we had survey information from mm. substitutes and there was such a mixed bag where some substitutes would say, I've never come to this school. And it like kind of opened up the door for them to be a regular oh, in that cool. school because they would never have gone there anyway. And it was That's like, nice. oh, that was great. And then we had, you know, substitutes who responded to the surveys and said they have like they have schools they would never go to because of past like bad experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's just yeah. sort of closed the door for them. Yeah. And so I think paying attention to that information, like yeah, that's sort of telling you about the bounds of how mm -hmm. much the money can help you, right? Like yeah. how, how much flex you have with the financial strategy versus like how mm. much you need to focus on improving environmental factors. Yeah, earlier when we were talking about the community aspect, you made a comment that by building a community, you're interested in that because it might bring longer lasting results. So as you're talking, I'm wondering if you can expound on this. It's almost like the increased pay was a lever that initiated significant, and it's significant, change, right? We're talking about a significant change in schools that had a big problem getting subs. It's very apparent, and the research is very clear. But I'm also wondering, sort of as we're talking, you, you maybe have alluded to, but we don't know if that's going to make it last, right? So we need a strong community. We need a strong working environment. Then to take those people that would have never come in those buildings, we increased it by 28%, but now we need to keep those people. So we have the working conditions, the support, the structure, all of these things that help people thrive in a working environment. We need those. Otherwise, this 28% increase is going to flutter 
you know, once we reduce that incentive. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I guess I would challenge the thought, and I'm sorry if I implied this before, but the thought that the results would sort of decline over time. Like we, so the study spans two years and in the second year we find totally sustained effects. And Mm. when we look more granularly at like month and day level substitute filling, like those effects are sustained throughout the school year. So if you expect the money is like a flash in the pan to make a difference and then you can't keep the people in the schools, you wouldn't see a sustained and growing effect over the course of the school year. So I think Mm. We do find evidence that this is effective and sustainable, um, at least within the realm of the time period we were looking at, which was two pre-pandemic school years. Um, So I guess I would push back a little on that, even if I said it before. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But to your point about community building, I think that's like, in my mind, a more... um, almost not root cause because Mm. I don't think that's what it is, but it's getting at sort of the other, like to your question about, isn't it more than just the money, like getting at those other aspects of substituting that Mm. make it more or less desirable to go to a school in a given day. Um, Mm. Like substitutes are just trying to pick the best school they can from the options they have on that day. And that's, there are a lot of factors that they have to account for in those decisions. And I think creating spaces that serve them would serve everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like it would help the school function better if the substitutes feel like supported and welcomed and taken care of. Yeah. Without a doubt. Let me ask you a clarifying question about that pay. And I appreciate you clarifying that a little bit more for us. Let's say you reduce the incentive right? So you had the pay the pay uh, increase and that's sustained from year to year. So thanks. Mm-hmm. Th- and, and sort of the research is showing and it sounds like you're convinced that if you kept the pay increased, then the 28% would remain. What would happen, do you think, if you took that incentive away to that 28%? I mean, this is purely speculation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, Obviously. <laughs> yeah. I guess I would expect it to return to... Well, I think I would expect it to return to slightly above the pre-intervention rate of coverage. Because I think it did affect some subs in like, oh, I didn't think this was like a school I wanted to substitute at. So Mm. I never looked or I wouldn't have thought like it's not even in the direction of my house I usually commute from. So I would never have thought to go that way. Um, And so I think it did broaden some substitutes horizons um, in terms of where they thought they wanted to work. So I think some subs would Mm. like still continue to work at schools they had tried or expanded more of their time into. Um, But I do think the financial incentive, like it's also about other types of work these people might be doing, right? Like Mm -hmm. getting more pay makes this a more sustainable source of income. Yeah. So that financial lever is effective and it's lasting for bringing labor into the school, right? Like you just said, people want to be paid for labor so that they can sustain their lives. I appreciated your your research and the clarity of it and and sort of highlighting if, if we're having an issue, you know, we're going to take the most difficult fill rates, we're going to increase an incentive 
and we're going to see what happens. And this made a positive impact for the school environment. It made a positive impact for the students. We actually saw an increase in scores. And this research is all very clearly laid out. And if a district is struggling with a sub-fill rate and you have people within, within your community that are desiring to work, this is a model I would highly encourage districts to take a look at and to see what can we take away from this? What can we learn from this? Maybe you can't take the whole structure, but there's pieces. There's significant aspects of this research that I think that all districts, whether it be large public school districts like Philadelphia, Chicago, or even private schools are thinking outside the box to get subs into their building. So I really appreciate that. And thanks so much for that research and for taking the time to talk to me about it on the podcast. It is time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Yeah, I think one thing I want to leave everyone with is um, to give a little bit of brain space to how all these non-teacher actors make your school environment what it is um, Mm. and create stability for everyone in the building. Like this Mm. paper is about substitutes, but here where I live in Seattle, earlier in the fall, we had school closures because there weren't enough bus drivers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anyone who's studying bus drivers. Mm -hmm. And I think like having an appreciation for all of these non-school staff and giving them the attention of making sure they're supported. Like they are people who are making that school function mm-hmm. and affecting both the teachers and the students, which I know are the populations like we care greatly about and should. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also there like making that environment what it is for everyone involved. So yeah, that's my closing point. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. And before we end, who do you want to give a shout out to? Um, I know Josh said shout out to Matt Craft, so I'm going to shout out Matt Craft. He's getting um, all sorts of shout outs. I know. He's the best. We love Matt Craft. He's so awesome. All right. We'll, we'll give him another shout out. Grace, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and all of your insight. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Diving Deep EDU podcast. If you liked this episode, subscribe, rate, review, and share it out. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. <laughs>